firstly, welcome um, to this event uh, with which is faith, doubt, and certainty in a secular age, apparently. Um, oops. Several years ago, while researching my novel, The Revelations, I complained to a friend, a priest, uh, that I could find nothing sane to hold against the strident atheism. <coughs> excuse me, strident atheism of Dawkins and Hitchens. He passed me Richard Holloway's Looking in the Distance, and it became a sort of Bible to me. Now, with his profoundly moving and extraordinarily honest memoir, Leaving Alexandria, Richard Holloway has set down the events of his life from poverty, near poverty, in the Glaswegian suburbs, to Kellam Seminary, to Accra, to AIDS hit Boston, to the Bishop of Edinburgh, and then, well, in 2000, Richard Holloway stepped down from his post as bishop in the wake of the Lambeth Conference and its uncompromising stance on the ordination of gay priests. Alongside that record of the public life of the man is an intensely personal story of the waxing and waning and eventual near disappearance of belief in God. You open the book in Kellam, Richard, the seminary you attended as a teenager and then left, and at the beginning of the, the book, you're there many years later, and it's like a roll call of the dead. You're going past the gravestones of the priests who taught you and priests who were your friends. And I wondered why you began the book on such an elegiac note. Um, I can even give you the, the date. It was July the 9th, 2009. Um, when the Society of the Sacred Mission left um, Kellam Hall in Newark in Nottinghamshire in 1973, they retained the, gra the graveyard, uh, the monastic graveyard, where all the members of the order were buried and can still go and be buried. So you've got this almost kind of corner of a, for of a foreign field um, that houses the dead of the order that trained me as a boy. And for some reason, I've been going back to that graveyard but every other year and standing in it and crying. Um, and on July the 9th, I know the date, my daughter's birthday, I was there two years ago. I, I, I felt the need to pay one of my periodic visits. I didn't have any agenda except to be there. Um, and Annie phoned me from the States. She lives in America. Um, and she asked where I was, um, and in trying to explain, I burst into tears. She phoned her mother and said, you get, but get hold of Daddy, standing in a graveyard in England, crying, she said. Um, and uh, I don't know why I did that. I mean, I, I would go back and scrape the lichen off these graves. I can remember these old men more vividly than almost anything else in my life. And, and the, the, there are 35 gravestones there. They're all covered in lichen except for two very recent ones. Um, and I, I knew I'd want to write that event. In fact, a friend had given me a propelling pencil, an old-fashioned propelling pencil. Um, and I, I, I felt an urgent need to write with that propelling pencil that event. So I took a little black notebook with me, those moleskin ones that, 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 um, that writers are encouraged to buy from Watterson's. Um, and I... I, I first of all dis I sketched in the graveyard and the exact position of the gravestones and then I told the story of that day because they showed me around Kellam Hall uh, you can't just wander around now because of security so I was taken around by someone 
And I got very emotional, especially in the chapel. They built this enormous basilica in the 1920s, a great big dome over the top. Father Hillary used to say, we give our life, we give our all inside this great big tennis ball because it, was a, it, it had that effect, a very transcendent kind of place. And so I wrote that day. That's how the book started. I hadn't intended to write the book at all. I wrote that day um, and what it was doing to me. And, um, and then one or two other chapters came. I, I was supposed to fly to the States to visit my daughter. The volcano stopped that. So instead I took a walk in another place laden with memories, the Goggles in Glasgow. Um, and I wrote that up as well. Um, and then I showed them to my wonderful publisher, um, Jamie Bing and, and Nick Davies, my editor, um, and said I was thinking of doing a book that was an inter, uh, that, that would splice kind of memoir, memories, with the usual essayist stuff that I write. And they said, okay, go ahead and do it. And then a few weeks later they said, we think the memoir is stronger than the essay stuff. Stick with that mood. I'd never intended to do such a thing. Stick with that. And so I started trying to discover who I was. Uh, I'm fond, too fond of Kierkegaard's crack that we live our lives forward but understand them backward. Um, and I, I then found that I was trying to discover how I'd ended up, where I'd ended up from where I'd started. And so it became a book. And it's, it's very interesting that you have this, this circularity to the novel because it kind of starts and, and, and ends in, in, in Kellum, given the, the, the beginning, I guess, is the ending. But, but there's also this sense that something that one of the priests had written, uh, I think, on his wall or, or, or quoted a great deal, nothing mm. counts but lifetimes. Mm. Mm. And that's, an I thought, an extraordinary way of thinking about what feels like almost a, a dying existence for mm. even mm. even at the time that you were there, or did it still? So Kellum was a seminary that was set up to uh, give a life of the priesthood for poorer mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. uh, young mm -hmm. men, mm -hmm. and yet it do, it does feel even as you as you tell of being in there. How many years ago? If you don't um, I went there in 1948. 1948. Um, at 14 years old. Um, I I was there. I did my two years national service. Um, in sort of 52, 53, went back, and then I went to Africa in, in 56. Um, so I was there really for about eight years on and off. Um, and there was a flow of people out. I mean, the, the whole essence of the, of the community was to give your life in a great... It's the idea of the given away life. You know how you have that you want to give yourself to a great purpose and you give yourself away. The trouble is you're still in the thing you've given. So you're never away. You're always just carrying it with you. Um, and that, that, that given away life is actually almost impossible, but it's very, it's very tantalizing. And a lot of people, Bosch, that was the term used at Kellum for people, uh, to quote the New Testament, who'd put their hands to the plow and turn back. Um, that the phrase that haunts me is Demas hath forsaken me having loved this present world and there's this sense that you get in intense religion of having set your hand to something and then failed at it you didn't do it for the whole life you left um, and uh, there's a lot of leaving goes on a lot of people left Kellum left the order I was one of them um, uh, but you're always left with that tug if only lifetimes count you've you haven't you haven't hacked it, and actually that you know that it, the, the the idea of leaving places and the idea of uh, 
not quite making it with what you do. And I think you're incredibly hard on you. And we might talk about why you're so hard on yourself in the book. But there is always this sense that you have not measured up to perhaps un un unlikely standards of, um, of, of behavior. And, and talk about that first departure, first leaving Kellam, when you, uh, when you were out in, uh, in Accra, um, and it was clearly this, this extraordinary moment of, of, of stepping away from a place where you, you clearly felt incredibly happy. Mm. Um, what happened was that they said, I don't quite know if, if, if they did this intentionally. I fell in love with another novice at Kellam. Um, I didn't realize it. I mean, I, it was a, almost a kind of Brightsheadian relationship. Um, I didn't want to be with anyone else but him. Um, and since I couldn't be, I couldn't do that, um, I kind of retreated into um, doing extra manual work, a lot of gardening. I would read dark Russian novels and listen to Beethoven. I mean, all the kind of you know, weird stuff that, that, that the lovelorn do. And the warden called me in. And the warden was a, a very particular... He left too, incidentally. I mean, his life was like a Graham Greene novel. He actually died in, <laughs> he died in Ethiopia, believe it or not. Um, and he called me in, and he, he kind of interrogated me. He said, ah, Dick, I've been watching you. And he was a watcher. He, he would sit at the high table in the refectory, and his eyes would beam round the students and the novices like a searchlight in a maximum security prison. Um, and he said, I've been watching you, and you, who should be a leader, um, have taken yourself out of the stream of life in the community at Kellam. Um, and uh, so I, and I, he didn't explore why. I wonder if he, if he guessed. Um, and I said I'd pull my socks off and I would be a leader. I would get back into, into the life of the community. And about three months after that, the father director called me in and said they wanted to send me to Accra because the, 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 the recently elected bishop of Accra was a Kellam father. Um, the last white man to hold that office, and would I go? Now, whether it was a way of getting me out of um, the term in monastic circles for falling in love or being particularly fond of another member of the order is inordinate affection. Um, and I, I was moved from my inordinate affection. I've never been good at ordinate affections. but the, the, um, So I went out to um, Accra. It was quite a lonely time. And I, w I was secretary to the bishop. And in, in the local library, because um, I was quick at my work, I had a lot of spare time, I'm, always, I'm, I'm quick at most things, which is one of my problems, but I discovered James Joyce. Not a good discovery for an, <laughs> for an aspiring celibate to make. Um, <laughs> And I, I read Finnegan's Wake, Ulysses, Portrait of the Artist as a Young Man. And I had to send him back uh, records of my thoughts. And what I started doing, alas, was I sent him stream of consciousness essays <laughs> on what I was feeling as I walked along the beaches of Accra with these gorgeous full-breasted women. And, and, um, and I, was, I was wrestling with the flesh and with... with and, and he was electrified by this, because um, it was not the normal kind of letter you got from, <laughs> from a monastic novice. Um, and so he ordered me immediately to return. He said, you must, you must come back, you're in danger. Um, 
and I wrote, uh, all this was done on those old-fashioned blue airmail letters. Yeah. Um, you didn't fly the world much in those days. It took me two weeks to get there in the Elder Dempster line. You got on the b boat at Liverpool and you st stopped various places around the coast. Um, and so I said, no, I'm not. I'm committed to stay for two years with, with Richard Rosevear, the bishop who needs me. Um, and he wrote back again and said, We've, we don't like to throw people out. Um, and I said, well, I'm not going to leave. And so he, they, the, the director then wrote to the bishop and said, we're at an, an impasse here. Um, he has to come home or he has to leave. And he won't do either. Um, and so he sat me down and he said, um, something tells me you, 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 you don't have the implicit capacity for obedience. <laughs> um, and, uh, but if you want to stay in the order you're going to have to go home um, and if you don't want to if you want to stay um, with me and work with me you're going to have to leave the order you've got 15 minutes to decide so I went and stood at the top the, the bishop's house uh, was a lovely kind of white light colonial building I wish I could remember it as well as I remember some of the other places and I stood and looked out at the Atlantic and then I came back in and I, I took my red girdle because you've got a red girdle with a crucifix hanging from it. The constitution of the society and I made a wee parcel and I, I resigned and um, sent it back to Kellum. And so I was out of the order. Um, I was still still there. I did another year um, in Accra and then I came um, back to Scotland um, in 58 and I, I thought that was it. I thought that um, you know the big divine adventure was over. I wasn't going to be a monk. Um, I got a place to study philosophy at Aberdeen University and I, and, and I wrote and told the Bishop of Glasgow out of courtesy because I knew he'd be interested and um, um, he immediately wrote back and said, forget Aberdeen, you'll come back to Scotland, you'll do another year's study, and then I'll ordain you. And the instinct for obedience hadn't completely atrophied because I obeyed him. Um, and I went back and within a year I was ordained. And maybe if I hadn't done that, it would have been different. But you were very, very happy, it feels to me, in those early days in the Gorbals mm -hmm. when you were working with uh, Lilias Graham. Lilias Graham, yeah. Uh, extraordinary woman, mm -hmm. an, an aristocrat mm -hmm. who... who mm -hmm. And what it seemed to me, uh, reading also your, your essays and, and particularly looking in the distance and, and, and between the, the, the monster and the saint, mm -hmm. she, Lilias Graham, clearly echoes down through some of the saints that you write mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. and saints mm -hmm. not in the... Uh, I guess ecclesiastical way but in people who you admire mm. and it's about this idea of acting mm. it's about mm. people who don't do a lot of talking about what they mm. do mm. but rather act and it seemed to me that perhaps your happiness in the Gorbals when you were working as much as a social worker mm. As, mm. as a priest was, uh, was down to the fact that you were able to act and you didn't need to think too much about your faith because you were acting your faith is, is that reasonable? That's absolutely true um, uh, I, I quote Schweitzer, who went through a similar crisis, and Schweitzer, great theologian, um, wrote a book called The Quest for the Historical Jesus, um, I couldn't find him, um, and um, decided to stop speaking about Jesus and instead to follow Jesus, so he just went off to the Congo, spent the rest of his life 
is adopted there. Um, and quite a few of us in the Gobos were, in a sense, we, we weren't sure where God was, whether God was, but we were sure um, that Jesus would have wanted the poor um, lifted up uh, and living alongside the poor. And Lilius Graham was this, extra she was a, um, a Scottish noblewoman, came from a distant Scottish king, um, granddaughter of uh, the, the, the Duke of Montrose. And when she came back from the war in 1948, she wrote to the Bishop of Glasgow and said she wanted to come and live and work in the Gobbles. And he, he wrote back and said, you can work in Gobbles, but you can't live here. So she came in and lived in Ibrooks, um, and then after a year, she didn't use this kind of language, but I mean, she said, you know, bugger the bishop, I'm going in. So she came in, um, and she lived in Gobbles until they destroyed the old Georgian tenements that we wanted them to recover. Um, um, and she lived there until um, the 70s. Um, and she was as unlike me as you could get. Um, she was... Um, serenely committed to doing she didn't agonize about the meaning of life or theology she was intrigued by that in me um, that, that did that she, there's, a, there's a McDermott poem I, I quote in the book uh, McDermott, uh, Hugh McDermott watches his, his wife nurse his little son um, and he compares his incapacity he doesn't have the patience to sit with the wee boy and bathe his head and he wrote this lovely poem about how his wife could do it. She had the capacity for mere being, this ability simply to be with people and to sit beside them and to do boring, bedpanny things, to sit by the dying and the sick. I never had that. I did it, but I was all, my meter was always running. And there was Lilius, who just had this infinite capacity. She was a very light kind of creature. She never seemed to work, or she never seemed not to work. She just was. And things happened around her. Um, and they called her the angel of the gobbles. Um, she died a couple of years ago, and, and gr grandchildren and great-grandchildren came to her funeral. And there was another man there, Jeff Shaw, a more agonized person, a bit more like me in, in that sense. I used to trade with him texts, and our favorite was, he saved others himself he cannot save. That, that's the plight of a lot of clergy. Um, they're quite good at enabling the freedom and graciousness of others, but they're not great at it in themselves. Um, and the other person in my, in my ministry that had what Lilius had was a remarkable woman um, called Jane Millard, whom I made chaplain to people with AIDS in Edinburgh. Edinburgh was the AIDS capital of the world when I came back as bishop. And this astonishing woman sat, she, she, she vigiled with 80 people who died of AIDS, and they finally let, they couldn't get rid of her. She would, she would lie covered in their hemorrhaging blood. Um, and I, I think, I know you want me to read one, one of that. She did, <clears throat> she told me once, she would come and see me and we would talk about, because the, you can imagine what this took out of her. She did 200 funerals of people who died with AIDS. And they were, they were rallies, there were acts of protest and beauty. And it was wrenchingly, a bit like being a soldier in Iraq in a way. And she would come and see me, and she told me once that she kept little, little things she called uh, um, uh, scraps of the watch. She would write down the, the details of a particular dying, a particular passing, and on anything she had in her hand. Um, and um, I put four of them in the book. She permitted me to do that. And they were wrenchingly beautiful and sad um, uh, as she just uh, 
have this capacity for being, simply to be there. Um, and I've, I don't have that. I was, I was an impatient father. Um, I wasn't good at looking after them uh, when Jeannie was out. I either got them riotously excited so that they wouldn't sleep or I got them down at six o'clock, you know, the kind of things. Yeah. Uh, I, I can, it. I can yeah. relate. Yeah. Yeah. Would you mind reading? I, I mean, uh, it's, it's maybe leap, leaping ahead in the story a little bit, but, but I just found this such an extraordinary <coughs> passage. And, I mean, I was, I was in floods of tears when, when I read this. Uh, and this is one of these fragments that, that she wrote yeah. for, for, for people as they went out. And, and I just think it's, it's astonishing. Um, these fragments, they're all about uh, you know, a, paragraph, a couple of paragraphs long. And she describes the person. And uh, this is a, a woman who's dying. Probably um, there were two, two routes the virus in Edinburgh, intravenous drug and, 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 uh, and unprotected sex. She was very afraid of dying. I don't want to die. Him upstairs will get a big stick and shout at me. Tell me to go to hell. I'm frightened. I don't want to be shouted at. And I hugged her, bereft of anything theological to say that sounded real. And she snuggled in. Talk to me, she whispered. There was a man who had two sons. And I told her the story of the prodigal son and the loving father. Will you be with me when I die? Be sure and tell me that story. So I did, about an hour ago. Now we are waiting for the undertakers. Sorry. And I think what is so extraordinary about that, that passage is that it does... You okay? Yeah, fine. <laughs> I cry easily, don't worry. No, well, <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I didn't yeah, until I read your yeah. book. Um, <laughs> one, one of the things that I think is really extraordinary about that passage is that it seems to me to summarize so much of what is wrong with religion and so much of what is right with religion, that this young woman should be going to her death terrified of this man with a stick telling her she's going to go to hell, but also this idea that it's through those stories upon which our faith is based that she is able to, to have. And this, will you repeat that to me as I die? It just, it, it's an astonishing, astonishing thing. And, and, and that seems to me the struggle that you go through almost all the way through the book is this idea that it's what people have done with it in the 2,000, 3,000 years since some of these texts were written that is the problem. It's the bureaucracy and uh, intransigence of the church that is at fault, not the texts themselves. No, because texts change. I mean, I think... If I put my finger on what it is, I mean, I still love religion. I, I think we probably can't do without it, but we need to purge it. That's why I li I, I'm glad it's having a bad time, because when it's having a good time, when it's in power, it's terrible. But when it's being kicked around, uh, in spite of what George Carey says, um, I thought it was ironic that he called a meeting at the House of Lords to talk about how persecuted Christianity was, but we won't go there. Um, 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 <coughs> 
Um, the, the trouble with it, it seems to me it's about absolute grace um, or it's no use to us. And there's a lot of that comes through. You get that in Jesus. I mean, that parable of, of, the, of, of the, um, the prodigal son is a parable of radical insane grace. Um, that, that's the thing that, that kind of makes me weep because it's about the father who rushes to meet his son, the scapegrace delinquent son who's blown everything. Um, and before the son can get a word out, he's forgiven. I mean, he doesn't have to qualify for forgiveness. He doesn't have to be good, live a good life to have that love. Um, and it, it, it seems to me that that's the essence of really insane, generous religion, that it understands how screwed up we all are um, by the accidents of circumstance, genes, and everything else. Um, and yet somehow we are understood, and you, got, you get that understanding in Jesus. But, but what happens when that idea is institutionalized, when, when you get a, a uniform branch running things, um, they end up running the institution for the sake of the institution. And two things then happen. They, they make a text um, an idol. And there's no doubt that sacred texts have become idols. And sacred texts carry great values. And the problem with sacred texts is not the great values they carry. And a lot of the great values in sacred texts are uh, timeless. Um, but they also carry time-bound prejudices. And the, the undiscerning institutional religionist cannot discriminate between them. And so you've got mercy and justice and for insane grace put in the same level as absolutely dated attitude towards women or gays. Because in addition to these wonderful things that come through these old sacred texts, which represent our wrestling with meaning and purpose, you've got them frozen in time because they, they came usually in patriarchal societies. Um, and those societies affirm those values. And if you think that book, that sacred text, carries permanent, un, unchangeable truth, then you are in a terrible predicament in today's liberationist society because it tells you um, to stone gays, not to ordain them, um, uh, to subordinate women, not to give them Bishop the mitre. Yeah. Bishop Riggs, yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it seems to me so much hinges, and I, and I think you, you do it brilliantly, uh, on this saying... Uh, uh, God did not make man for the Sabbath, but made mm. the Sabbath for mm. man, yeah. which seems to me to go completely against this idea that the gates of interpretation are closed. Yeah. And, and I see no reason why, if we update our, our, you know, we wouldn't want to be treated in the hospital with 3,000-year-old uh, medical treatments. Why should our religion not be updated in the same way? Absolutely. I mean, the, the, the saying that runs like a red thread through this book is, is what Jesus said about this. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Uh, that, to me, relativizes all human institutions. We, we need institutions. We need vehicles. It's, I like Weber's thing, the routinization of char charisma. You need a vehicle to carry a great new idea through history. Um, but they're only incidental to the carrying of the purpose. Um, and so we invent things like Sabbaths because we need holidays. Um, we invent institutions because we need to preserve memories of people like Jesus. But you, you end up keeping the vehicle rather than the purpose it's meant to carry. Um, and I, I think that, that that text makes everything provisional except grace and love and mercy. 
Um, and the dear old church can't get hold of that. Well, a lot of individuals have, but institutionally it finds it very difficult to change. Um, and that's why a lot of the best people find Christianity. They they're quite interested in Christianity. They're interested in, in the depth of life, the spirituality, the fact that this world is not conclusion, that it's a strange thing we're in being alive. Um, I mean... Gauguin's questions, where do we come from, what are we, where are we going, these are on, part... On the death of his daughter, wasn't it? The death of his daughter, yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. 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 Um, and I, I do so long for Christianity just to chuck the institutional stuff. On the other hand, if we didn't, it was that institution that carried the memory of this anarchist Jesus, so and that's the kind of paradox we live with. And if we go forward a little bit to the, the point where you really clashed with this institution, 1998, the Lambeth Conference, mm. an incredibly painful experience for you. Um, and two years later, you you step you, you you stepped aside from 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 your bishopric. You didn't leave the church per se, but you left the church. You took a sabbatical. You took a sabbatical from, the, a church, sabbatical yeah, from yeah, the church. Yeah, yeah. yeah um, I don't quite know where it came from, but I, I think. Most of the priests who mentored me in my early days must have been gay. I, I know that the rector who brought me in, into church was gay. I was trained as an Anglo-Catholic, and Anglo-Catholics have always had lots of gay priests. Um, and, and I've loved them because um, even not knowing anything about their sexuality, something about the experience of being gay in, in, a, in a church setting is extraordinarily heroic. Um, to, to, to give your life to an institution that officially thinks you are a disordered, sinful being simply by the way you are. Um, and, I've, I, and for that reason, I've learned from these men, and they're mostly men, a kind of troubled grace and acceptance. Another thing that breaks me up, uh, the greatest Scottish poet of our time, uh, Eddie Morgan, died last year. Eddie wasn't able to come out till he was 70 because homosexuality was not decriminalized in Scotland until 1980. And this prodigious artist, he died in his 90s. He only had about 11 years as an out gay man. That kills me, that fact. Um, uh, the, the grace of that man, the generosity of that man. Um, uh, he was a, quite a timid man. Very courageous, but experimented in all sorts of different forms. Um, and if there's one thing I think we have to abhor with, with absolute passion, it, it's cruelty. And what religion, these, religion isn't full of cruel people. Most of the people I knew in the church were kindly people. But the institutional religious understanding made them responsible for cruel policies. Which is why when people like Richard Dawkins say that bad men will do bad things but only religion can make good people do bad things, sadly there's something in that. And it's because they've got this incoherent attitude towards text. Um, that all came to a head for me in 1998 at the Lambeth Conference. Lambeth Conferences are Episcopal jamborees when all the Anglican bishops from the galaxy arrive um, <laughs> in Canterbury with their purple frocks uh, and the, the ter terrible experiences. Please, I, I, I do not recommend them at all. I mean, it's like, it's like having prolonged root canal work. Um, <laughs> and I went to two. The first one in 88 was actually manageable. It wasn't bad. We avoided breaking up over the ordination of women was the issue then. Um, 
1998, the hot issue, the neuralgic issue, were, was the gay issue, um, because it was big in the States um, and it was, it was coming in other, other cultures. One of the ways we'd handled the ordination of women ten years before was by a kind of recognizing the different contexts made. Um, that in some contexts, the, the emergence of women hadn't happened yet, but it had happened in Manhattan, it had happened in Edinburgh. Um, and so you couldn't expect them to go at the same time zone as where it hadn't even come out at all. And we managed a kind of um, magnan magnanimity towards each other in which it was recognized, well, where it's a hot issue, you pursue it. We won't break up over it. We'll, we'll go at a kind of two-track speed. And meanwhile, we'll have a commission to study it, which is the classic but brilliant Anglican fudge for buying time so you don't break up. You buy time, you appoint archbishops to produce reports that no one reads, but they do consume a lot of time, and the excuses to fly to different parts of the Anglican Communion and have meetings. Um, and meanwhile, 10 years has gone on, and the, some of the heat's gone out of the... So I thought we'd do that with the gay issue in 1998, but we didn't. Um, what, in fact, we got, and I'm afraid it was largely at the hands of the African bishops... Um, they would allow no compromise, no approach that fudged it, that bought time. Um, and the, the debate we had that afternoon was the most horrifying experience of my life because it wasn't about disagreement, it was about hatred. Hatred was palpable in that room. I mean, you could cut it with a knife. Um, the things they said um, about gay people. One Nigerian bishop exorcised Richard Kirker um, a young Church of England clergyman who'd been running the lesbian gay Christian movement and on the grassy knoll outside the conference centre at the Lambert Conference he cast demons out of Richard Kirker uh, with no conspicuous success I may say um, <laughs> um, but they did release a, a, a demon in Anglicanism I think and it did something to me um, partly because I've always had this um, instinctive thing about uh, liberating uh, gay people partly because I've always been touched by their grace because they've given great things to me um, do, you, do you think also I mean you, you mentioned this inordinate relationship that you had that mm -hmm. was entirely mm -hmm. chaste and, mm -hmm. but it's, it's one of the, uh, again one of the most moving sections in the book when years later mm -hmm. when you're just about to become Bishop of, of Edinburgh mm -hmm. you go back to Kellam to meditate upon this. No it wasn't Kellam. Oh I'm sorry. I went to a nunnery in Kent. Ah okay. A, a nun there you I go. recommend nunneries in Kent. Yeah. <laughs> mm. But coincidentally mm -hmm. this young man yeah. who is no longer such yeah. a young man nope. is there and, and you say I was about to turn the key in the ignition, about to leave, when I remembered the Rose Bay willow herb flaming at the roadside that long ago summer. I mentioned it, recalled the vacation we had taken together. We were in love, he said. Yes, I replied. A quiet disturbance threaded my mind, an invisible procession going by. I wonder whether the alternate reality of what would have happened if you hadn't if he hadn't pulled the sheet up mm. between you mm -hmm. uh, to, to th that time, whether that mm. had a, a personal play on the way that this became the issue for you, mm. that that became the thing. It, it's, it's quite possible. Um, um, someone's even wondering if I'm gay myself. I think being me, I would have tried it by now. Um, <laughs> um, well, he gave, but you, he he gave you, a, yeah. you, know, yeah. he, he no, gave you no, the opportunity. We, we slept in the same bed in a Cornish farmhouse um, we were hitchhiking, um, and um, I 
jumped gaily, wrong. Um, <laughs> I jumped into bed quite happily. He brushed his teeth and came back, and he said, he said, I'll sleep on the top side of the sheet, which was interesting. Um, and I suppose that we slept in this, under this, the, the sheet, we might have, who knows? Yeah. I, I've, I've often wondered what would have happened if we'd, if we'd found ourselves um, um, making love. A middle, I mean, a, a, a number of prohibitions would have, I mean, the fact that we were monks um, vowed to celibacy, the fact that it was illegal um, in those days, I don't know. Um, but I know what it's like to love a man. Um, and it doesn't seem all that bad to me. Um, uh, but, um, and that might have had some, some influence in, in my attitude to, to the gay question. Um, uh, I'm, it, it wouldn't bother me if it were in there. Um, but, but it didn't feel, because there's a number of times in the book, you, as I think any religious person does, look for signs. And it didn't, I mean, it felt to me like a sign that mm. this man should turn up mm. just as you're about mm. to embark on this, on this glittering yeah. uh, career as a, as a bishop. Mm. It, 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 it. I hadn't seen him. I hadn't seen him for um, over 30 years. Um, he, he, looked, he looked tougher, both inwardly and And he was leaving as well. He was leaving the order. Um, and the most heartbreaking thing is I asked him if I could do anything for him because uh, he was going to live in a council flat in, in County Durham and he said, could you buy me a transistor radio? I'd like a radio. Still very little in his life, so I did. I sent him a radio. He's in an old folks home now. The period after you left um, you have written a great deal. You have written a, a, a marvellous memoir. It feels like the religion or belief, I guess, in the way that, that we might but say we believe in God has mm -hmm. almost totally gone. Mm -hmm. And yet you maintain this affection for the church. Mm -hmm. Do you think there's any chance of you ever getting back there? Or do you think that this? Do you think the relationship is over? I kind of like the way I've got. I mean, I go to church. In fact, I'm preaching um, a week on Sunday at Old St Paul's, my my favourite building on the planet, um, and I like it empty. I like empty churches. Um, I like going into churches, you know, like Larkin and church going. Um, um, I like I like churches because of the hope they promise and the frustration and because we are extraordinary creatures um, and um, I don't have a supernatural faith left I don't believe that there is um, I, I believe that Christian doctrine is metaphor it's it's poetics not forensics uh, I can sort a lot of meaning out of it I'm not an atheist because that's too made up a position I mean I. Uh, and, and I'm intrigued by the way atheism is now becoming religious. Um, it's you know it's now becoming as intense and formalised and propositioned. Um, and and it, they're becoming as both as uh, kind of vengeful. Oh I God, feel. Yeah. And yeah. Um, you know, I mean, the, 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 we were talking just before yeah. this about the the article Brian Appleyard wrote yeah. in the uh, in the New States, and it's had yeah. death threats over yeah. it. He said death threats from atheists because he's saying <laughs> that it's all right, right to be religious. Now how? How diseased is that? And how close 
to uh, being the mirror image of the thing you hate. But we know that. You, well, where you hate we, the thing you fear. Yeah. Where would Dawkins be without God? He'd just be a, be a geneticist. Um, but, um, <laughs> but, but that's, uh, you know, this idea that those guys are actually closer to religion than the kind of generalized sense of, 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 of uh, that we are in a secular age and that we shouldn't say prayers at the beginning of. Uh, what I find really interesting is that the debate has even come back, that I thought that these things were out the way. I thought, I, I was in, incredibly surprised to hear that in a town in Devon, what was the town, where they, they say, that they said prayers before, before their council yeah, yeah, meetings. Yeah, yeah. And, and so what do you take this latest kind of flowering of religious debate? Is this a sign that this is, has always been something that we've been obsessed with and that it's always been, been, these have always been questions we need to ask? Or is it a sign that something is coming back? I think it, it probably never goes I think it's a sign of two things. I think that there are some very... Um, there are some strange Christians out there who resent... Um, the, the weakening of Christianity um, and uh, the, the same thing has happened. I think it, it's a power issue um, uh, this group that, that claims that there is a vindictive campaign against Christianity and that it's being marginalised I think it's being intellectually marginalised a lot of people just don't think about these yeah. issues so I think that, that there's a kind of uh, a reaction to the indifference of largely secular Britain I don't think most of secular Britain wants to persecute religions. They don't like the really fanatical ones that get people to do terrible things. But I think on the whole, there's a kind of live and let liveness about it. There's, a, there's an affection for good old beleaguered, weak Christianity in Britain. It does, they see a lot of good things being done by them. Um, the clergy in this city will be doing extraordinary things every day. Watch that television sees rev you get an eye what, what other profession opens your door to uh, beaten up drug addicts all hours of the day and night I, I think that's a lovely thing about communities of faith that they're one of the few institutions that actually organize unofficial caring because it, it's simply simply part of the ethic of their being um, and there is something beautiful about that I mean it kind of wore me out but I mean it's it, it, it is in there. I think that's going on. I think, however, that 9-11 was one of those big moments in, in the consciousness of atheists like Richard Dawkins, whom I actually quite like and get on with, um, and uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens, um, because I think they saw a kind of really pathological um, uh, re religion, which was a response to modernity. I mean, there's a, there's a section of Islam that's having great problems with modernity. It's also having, I think, appropriate problems with hideous um, Western foreign policy mm -hmm. interventions. So even that's highly complex. But I think 9-11 did something to the psyche of people like Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens. Um, and they, they've got the thing unbalanced. Well, they seem to feel that those extremes of religion, those religions which, as you say, put the text in its original yeah. state yeah. first, are representative of all mm. religion. And, and that seems to me... I mean, yeah. And when you read The God Delusion, which, which I actually don't think is a very good book, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you, you get this... It's, it's the rantings. It's a man oh, yeah. In, yeah. in the desert. Yeah. You know. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, but, but if you think of... Take the most revolting far-right American televangelist you can think of 
Don't you faintly foam at the mouth at the yeah, thought? Yeah, absolutely, um, but I wouldn't castigate you wouldn't, all You wouldn't all, say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think that, that's what Richard does, because if you go, if you remember his television programme about the root of all evil, most of his examples of really crazy cartoon religion were from the Bible Belt. Yes, yeah. I mean, he didn't interview Richard Harris, for instance, um, the, you know, the... The, the sophisticated, liberal-minded former Bishop of Oxford, because he couldn't have he couldn't have done that with him. Yes, absolutely. Um, one of the things um, that that you do in your work and uh, is is pepper it throughout with, I think, far more references to poets and far more quote, quotes from poets than to theologians or philosophers mm -hmm. even. Um, and it feels a bit like, you know, Eliot's, these fragments I have shored mm. against my ruins. It's this idea of trying to put together a canon of writers who can help you to, to negotiate the world. To, to, and, and, I mean, Hopkins is clearly mm. foremost among yeah, a, a yeah, wonderful yeah. poet, but, mm. but, but also, I guess, Larkin, mm. um, I, I, Emily Dickinson, Cavafy, Rumi, mm. um, and, 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 and your friend Yeats. And, and W.B. Yeats. And, and I hope the audience will excuse me if I uh, ask for an indulgence. I, um, uh, I went to uh, a reading of Richard's um, uh, about a year ago, I guess, maybe, maybe slightly more recently, and he read a little bit of um, The Circus Animal's Desertion by Yeats, and it was one of the most moving experiences of my life, and I, if you would wouldn't mind reading it again, yeah, um, and and maybe talking a little bit about it's right at the end there, yeah. um, and maybe talking a little bit about mm. the, the poem as well mm. because um, it, it's one of his late poems, um, and he thought he'd lost the gift um, because all his circus animals, all his images had always been in show. He thought they'd come from an occult sphere. In fact, uh, his wife Georgie used to uh, do automatic writing, not only to get him to have sex because she wanted children, and he would do it if he were psychically um, commanded to do it. Uh, I think he was tired out. And he, um, it was before the injections of monkey glands that gave him that late that's flourishing. Right. Yeah, that's yeah. Right. Um, and he'd always assumed that, um, because he was, he was a kind of vatic bardic, um, mystical kind of uh, thinker. And that side of him, I don't buy the, the Rosicrucianism and all of that, but I do adore him. And he thought that, that a, lot of this, a lot of his poetry came from out there in this great metaphysical supernatural sphere. And at the very end of his life, and in this poem in particular, he realizes it came from himself. It came from his own brokenness. Um, and he wrote this wonderful poem um, the circus animal's desertion, and I've, I've, I mean, I loved, I loved the last four lines, but I'll read the whole thing. It's quite complicated, but it's not very long. I sought a theme, and sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so. Maybe at last, being but a broken man, I must be satisfied with my heart. Although winter and summer till old age began, my circus animals were all on show. Those stilted boys, that burnished chariot, lion and woman, and the Lord knows what. What can I but enumerate old themes? First, that sea rider ocean led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams, 
Vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose, themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems, that might adorn old songs or courtly shows. But what cared I that set him on to ride? I starved for the bosom of his fairy bride. And then a counter-truth filled out its play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. She, pity-crazed, had given her soul away, but masterful heaven had intervened to save it. I thought, my dear, must her own soul destroy. So did fanaticism and hate enslave it, and this brought forth a dream, and soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. And when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cúhulán fought the ungovernable sea, heart mysteries there, and yet when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me, character isolated by a deed to engross the present and dominate memory, players and painted stage took all my love, and not those things that they were emblems of. Those masterful images, because complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began? A mound of refuse, or the sweepings of a street, old kettles, old bottles and a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Um, I'm conscious that um, we have only 35 minutes left and I would very much like to open up uh, to the floor for questions. <coughs> if anyone has. Yeah, up there. Um, is there somebody with a, with a microphone? Uh, up, up on the right there. Uh, my name is David. Uh, can I say a heartfelt thank you to both of you? Um, I found that very moving. And um, it was a question I, I, I wanted to ask. I was minded uh, a lot as you were speaking of uh, uh, Eliot's four quartets, and particularly the, the, the times when you were moved, and I hope you don't mind me uh, mentioning this, uh, Richard, the times when you were moved um, thinking about the doors that you hadn't opened, the, the, the roads that you hadn't gone down um, and, and I wonder if you would uh, be willing to, to, to talk a little about that area that the word regret doesn't quite cover it but regret, remorse but, but the, the, what is um, and also I hate, I hate to be greedy but I wonder if you could say something about uh, uncertainty and also uh, something about David Jenkins, Bishop of Durham sorry to be greedy well, that should take us the rest of the night. Um, <laughs> regret. Um, I've had a few. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yep. God, haven't I just? Um, <laughs> but but I, I, I think they can be a kind of softening thing because I think one of the things you, you, you get to when you get to my age and look back, um, you see a lot of failure. Um, but you also, I mean, I'm, I'm enough of a fatalist and a determinist to believe that a lot of character is given. Um, I'm not a complete determinist because I think that's an absurd position, but I do believe that, and I'm going to quote another of my favorite poets, 
I do believe we have to learn to accept and forgive ourselves. I love old Hopkins when he said, My own heart let me more have pity on. Let me live to my sad self hereafter kind. Because I think the people that were probably unkindest to ourselves simply because of our failures, because that hasn't succeeded, that relationship, that job, um, that piece of work we gave ourselves to, we failed. We didn't put it off. And a lot of it was probably because it wasn't us in the first place. One of the things I discovered in writing this book is that I was not really an appropriate person ever to have become a bishop because I'm, I don't have the loyalty gene to institutions. Uh, I didn't know that when I was a wee boy. I didn't even know it when I was a middle-aged man. But looking back, I can see I didn't keep the rules ever. Um, uh, and it's not because I think the rules shouldn't be kept, um, but it's because I, I tend to be... Um, in, in favour of personal exceptions rather than institutional norms and you need people like that but you don't make them bishops you don't give them you don't make them run institutions so um, and I didn't know that it's tough because the, the, I, as I say you you understand backwards um, and I think that one of the things that getting older teaches you is the incommensurability between your ideals and the reality of your own nature and you have to end up accepting yourself. I mean, Nietzsche called it amor fati, love of fate. Um, the other thing, the thing about uncertainty is I think uncertainty is a beautiful state. Um, uh, and I think there are some things we have to be certain about. We have to be certain about compassion and justice. Um, but there are things here, the things close to us. You know it's cruel. It's, it, you, 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 you must stop someone beating up a child. I mean, I, Ivan Karamazov, the death of one child, he returns the ticket. That kind of stuff you can be certain about. That's foul. You'll, 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 you'll attack that to the death. But ultimate questions of the ultimate nature of reality, there's no way you can be certain. And if you are certain about those things, it's because of fear. Um, and um, I, I think that uh, I quote a poem at the end of the book I love, uh, a Jewish and Israeli poet, Yehuda Amakai, from the place where we are right, flowers will never bloom in the spring. The place where we are right is hard and trampled like a yard, but doubts and loves dig up the world like a mole, a plough, and a whisper will be heard in the place where the ruined house once stood. So it seems to me, and it's Keats' negative capability, the ability to live joyfully, gracefully, with uncertainty. Um, maybe you'll discover a few things, a few other things will become a bit more certain. I suspect the big things won't be. David, David Jenkins, lovely guy, um, and he got beaten about the head too because he dared to think outside um, the, the, you know, the strictures. of. Uh, the really difficult thing for religions is that uh, truth is so difficult and elusive, and dear old religion has made, made the big mistake of actually declaring a certain kind of truth official truth. I mean, it'd be a bit like saying Newtonian physics is now official truth. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's daft, isn't it? Uh, because the one thing that happens is that you go on discovering Einsteinian physics. Um, and uh, Christianity seems to think that it can make metaphysics static. It can't. It keeps, it keeps changing and shifting. Um, and um, David Jenkins was one of the only bishops I knew who, who, who read um, Hawking. Um, uh, and uh, you know his his big what, what's his sign uh, Stephen Hawking's book that came out um, brief history of time brief history of time the only bishop I knew that got more than four pages into it. <laughs>
next question. Young lady. Thank you again. It was really lovely for you to hear the two of you speak. Um, so, again, if you agree with this statement, how do you respond to the idea that there has been a transformation from the more traditional forms of religion to a more kind of charismatic and fundamental form of religion, say, in Pentecostalism and Sufism? Um, in the book, I mean, I had a Pentecostal phase. Um, I prayed in tongues, thought I was praying in Mandarin Chinese. There's a brilliant scene where, <laughs> where, where you believe that you're speaking Chinese all the way on the train up from London to Edinburgh. And you walk out into, uh, into Edinburgh and there's a young Chinese lady on the street and you come joyfully burst out in Chinese and she looks at you for a moment and then turns and runs. LAUGHTER <laughs> um, Oh, God, yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, Pentecostalism, the, the, something happened in you know, the Acts of the Apostles. They were all gathered together in one place, and tongues of fire, and they all prayed in different languages. Glossolalia is just making a nice sound. It's actually quite releasing. Try it. I mean, it's like, like hop, opera singers warming up. They're doing, yeah, we are. Try it. I mean, well, you you're, you're going home. Are you, yes, yeah, yeah. that's right. All of those things. Um, the mistake is a lot of people also... Th also thought that, that you're actually getting miraculously the capacity to speak a foreign language. Well, um, I, I, did, I did a radio show with um, I did Richard Bacon's show on Five Live, and, and he slightly threw me by asking people who could speak in tongues to phone in to the radio station. <laughs> and, and there was a guy who genuinely claimed, he said, test me. And... And, and of course he couldn't. I mean, of course it was. I mean, it, it, it's total. It's a form of, of I think, uh, relatively harmless madness. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a kind of psychic release. I mean, Paul talked about it. Paul's great hymn to love in 1 Corinthians 13 was a response to this phenomenon in the early church because they were all at it. It didn't make them any better, any more loving. Uh, it was a kind of, it was kind of sex without sex in a way. I mean, it's, you know, it was very, very orgasmic and releasing. And that's why he said that, that um, uh, uh, he, he listed the gifts and he said that the greatest is love, greatest is charity. Uh, when, I, w when we had the Pentecostal experience at Old St. Paul's, um, the holiest person in Edinburgh couldn't get tongues. Um, a, 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 a former bishop of Zanzibar called Neil Russell, a man who spent two hours a day in silent prayer, gave all his, you know, walked about like a tramp. I thought he was a tramp first time he came to the door, gave him a sandwich. Um, and, um, um, and so, uh, but I don't knock it because, in a sense, there is, there is a sense in which um, Anglo Saxon religion, European religion, has got too tight. Um, and the, the, the thing about Pentecostal religion, and you get it in, in the African-American um, churches in particular, you get this vibe, which is, you know, which is very intoxicating. And a lot of that comes through that. I don't mind it. Unfortunately, it, it, it's also often, but not always, associated with these um, biblicist ideas about other people. It can be quite homophobic. Um, it can be... Um, tough on, on women, but um, it, it's actually done quite a lot to loosen up Latin American Christianity. Um, uh, but the danger there is that, that I think it can lend itself to a kind of fraudulence, a kind of phony, you know, the big church experience. You know about it because you've, um, in, in Alex's book, uh, The Revelations, um, 
and it, it's a, a lot of a lot of the the people who end up running these big outfits are actually crooks, and you know they make a lot of money out of it. They look they look polished, and they drive extraordinary cars and all of that. Um, uh, but I think religious experience, sometimes it's dancing, it's drumming, uh, slaying in the spirit, kind of having someone put their hand in your forehead. And you, I've never had that. Um, uh, I'm a trier. I've tried most things. Um, and a lot of it can be quite releasing. Don't take any of them too seriously. Uh, uh, someone once, the, the, the guy who got tongues to me best uh, was a, a monk, a guy called Roland Walls, who died recently. And he said, all praying in tongues is it's silent prayer that makes a noise. <laughs> in other words, it's not rational. You're, it, that's the liberating thing about it. You're not trying to figure out God. You're not trying to ask God for anything or explain God. You're just kind of in an ecstatic, rhapsodic babble. Um, and it's rather, it's rather beautiful. It can be well. very beautiful. Yeah. I've, got a, I've got a recording of a Trinidadian church mm -hmm. uh, where they're all... Speak or having glossolalia, mm. Mm. And, and it's absolutely beautiful. It's and beautiful. they they would be instinct, in, intrinsically capable of harmony, because mm. they, they they would they would get they would they would harmonise it. Um, you get less of that in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> Another question. Yep, in the middle there. Thank you. Um, yeah, following on that question about what's, what's going on in contemporary religion, you said at one point that you were glad religion's having a hard time at the moment, and I understand why you're saying that, but I think one of the things that worries me um, working here at, at, at LSE, I'm the chaplain here, um, is that a, a lot of our young people, I think, um, are, so, are not thinking very creatively and imaginatively about their faith, and I'm talking right across the religions here, because they're so busy sort of feeling that they have to defend it and feel they have to present a united front mm. and trying to get some sort of creative interfaith discussion, for example, going on where people find points of connection um, you know, across the traditions can be quite frustrating for that reason. So I just wonder where you see this current um, rather tense, uh, um, aggressive critique of religion going. I mean, do, do, do you think it's a good thing because you think it might prompt a crisis that, that then leads to a new... Uh, phase, or do you think that somehow the the, the, the tension needs to be diffused, and we, you know we need a new sort of calm reflection? So I think universities should be a time where you think creatively. Mm. I, I read your books. <laughs> um, thank you. Um, I think it's already um, overreaching itself um, that you know that the aggressive neo-atheism that's around. I mean, the, uh, Brian Appleyard had an article in the New Statesman last week. Um, about, I mean, Alain de Botton's written, I think, an interesting book called Religion for Atheists. Um, uh, John Gray is an atheist philosopher who's very warm towards religion, um, thinks that the doctrine of original sin is wonderful as I do. It's the only empirically verifiable Christian doctrine. Um, we could verify it in this room this <laughs> afternoon quite easily if I could radar your thoughts. Um, um, and, um, sorry? Ah, you're misunderstanding original sin. I'll come back to you in a minute. Let me finish here. Um, <laughs> I said original sin, not original guilt. Don't go away. Um, then, <laughs> I, think that it's, I think these things come and go, but one of the things that's always been good for religion is bouts of atheism because it purges religion of idolatry. Um, and religion is the human response to the possibility of the mystery of God. The danger... Um, 
that you fall into if you're a religious person is that you begin to think that the human response, this thing called religion, is itself the thing you're responding to. And you're not. Which is why for the Hebrews, the most dangerous thing was, was, was idolatry, not atheism. Because an atheist says, there's no God, whereas an, Id- an idolatrist says, this, this theory's God or that institution's God. So I think it's quite good when we get beaten around because it purges us of a lot of, a lot of this. And I think a lot of, a lot of Christian thinking recently has been not rigorously intellectual enough. I mean, I, I, think, I think that, that uh, that's why people like Richard Dawkins, when, when, they, when Karen Armstrong writes about him, he doesn't understand um, apophatic theology, which is, which, which is the deep understanding that you cannot talk about God. There is the no word negativa, that fits God. This, yeah, this the via negativa, yeah. yeah. Um, and that's, in, that's deep in Islam as well. I'm reading Roger Scruton's um, Gifford Lectures at the moment, and he, he goes into this. God is not in this place where we are, and therefore you cannot, anything that you find to say is not about the possibility of that mystery, it's about what we make of the possibility of that mystery. And the trouble is, that, and I said it earlier, the trouble is ordained people in particular, clergy are a great problem to spirituality because they think they've got it sorted. You and I know this because we've been in this. We get defensive. Uh, I've been challenged by people on trains, right? I've got an hour, I'm getting off at um, Stoke Pogies. Prove to me the existence of God. <laughs> um, so I... I, I th- and the thing, and don't be afraid. Uh, the thing that I was afraid a lot of my ministry uh, because I wasn't, I wasn't able to look at the depths of my own doubt. I couldn't read Nietzsche for years. I couldn't read Don Cupid for years. A lot of people, Don Cupid's a great radical Cambridge theologian who's been sidelined by the Church of England. Only one, real, one member of the Church of England establishment speaks to Don now. Simply because this is a man who thinks relentlessly, graciously. I think he's a saint. I think he's a saint of radical Christianity. Um, and the thing is not to be afraid. I mean, remember what Simone Weil said, that, that if it comes to a choice between Christ and truth, choose truth always. Otherwise, your choosing is fraudulent, is fear. Now, original sin. Okay. <laughs> Original sin is simply a metaphoric way of talking about the fact that we humans are screwed up creatures, um, capable of enormous selfishness, um, and that it's intrinsic to the human condition. We're capable of enormous good and enormous evil. Um, And I think it comes from um, our our intellectuality, our capacity for thought. and it, it means that we're, we're not able to... I'm reading an astonishing book uh, on, about peregrines at the moment. It's a famous book by a, a naturalist called, called Baker. And he, he almost becomes shamanic in his capacity to get into the life of peregrines. And it's, it's beautiful but horrifying because it's all about birds tearing birds to pieces with great beauty and lethality. Um, and, and they do it instinctively. They're, they don't have, they're not aware of it. I'm sure that peregrine um, was not agonizing about the fact that he's just seen off um, umpteen birds in the fens. Um, we are 
interested in ourselves, we're objects of interest to ourselves, um, we're dark, we're troubled, um, we're capable of, of goodness and evil, that's really the shorthand for that is original sin. And we always have a tendency to overdo it. Um, we, 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 we tend to um, complexify even the good things that we do, and uh, that's why we're the most dangerous animal on, on, on the planet. That's all I mean by original sin. It's just shorthand. Original guilt is an entirely different concept. It's kicked in probably by St. Augustine of Hippo, which is the idea that because Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the forbidden tree, and we are in their, we're part of their DNA, we're born guilty, that's dangerous. Put the hex on that one. Um, but uh, I don't think many reasonable people believe that. There's still a touch of it in, in infant baptism. Children are born unregenerate. So we need to, we need to write better baptismal liturgies. The, the one we've written in Scotland doesn't go there at all. Uh, I don't know whether you're still stuck with original guilt in England. Wouldn't surprise me. I don't know. <laughs> Right. Hello? Hi. Yeah, I'm glad you like W.B. Yeats as an Irishman. Um, let me then put my thoughts in Yeats. The intellect of man is forced to choose perfection of the life or of the work, and if it take the second, must refuse a heavenly mansion raging in the dark. And the second one relating to something that happened a few hundred yards in this direction, moral leadership. from the second coming. The best lack all conviction, mm. while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Mm. Mm -hmm. So let's just take moral leadership at St. Paul's, Quakers dragged away by policemen, mm -hmm. and that poor lady who was in the bed. The, 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 the poor lady the in the bed, heaven, What's going to happen to you? You're lacing Yeats through your more yes. contemporary references. I'm not catching them. Yes, yeah, so the main yeah. thing is, what's going to happen when you die? Are you going to go upstairs or wherever? Do you believe in heaven? And secondly, what do you feel about what the Church of England has given in terms of moral leadership in this country? Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I don't believe in heaven. Um, we'll go there first. Um, in fact, I had a moment on the Amma Hillwalk, I had a moment on the Pentlands when going down scored law, I realized that I neither wanted it nor expected it. I might be unpleasantly surprised, um, but um, uh, I, I think there's almost a lack of um, generosity in wanting it to carry on. I can't, none of the prospectuses I've read for the afterlife attract me in the slightest. Um, and, um, and I can't get my head around it. Uh, it. I mean, I think that the whole thing is extraordinary. DNA is extraordinary. Um, I th see things in my grandchildren. I see a life going on. But it's uh, so. Uh, no, I, I don't want it. Um, I don't expect it. Um, uh, and I think that it's, it's peculiar, really, in many ways, in intensity to Islam and Christianity. You don't get it in Judaism at all, really. Um, uh, they're, they're, you know, they're interested in life before death. Um, and I think one of the problems with the emphasis that we put on it in Christianity is that it's made a lot of people afraid of dying. I mean, I've sat beside people absolutely paralyzed with fear. Um, the, woman in, the woman dying of AIDS is there. Um, uh, James Joyce has got those horrific sermons by, by the Jesuits in retreat describing what it's like to be eternally in hell, your eyeballs molten, your guts 
and no escape going on and on forever. It's the fire that never consumes. Um, and so I, I, think it's, I think it's the ugliest thing uh, that we've invented in, in religion. And St. Paul's, the Church of England, I love the Church of England. I, I, I love its old muddled liberal. I'm, I'm not sure I like the takeover that's, that's going on um, it, with the conservative evangelicals don't want to knock them too but, but there is a sense in which they've, they've made it a more Puritan church a less forgiving church I think that uh, if you're alluding to the Occupy movement and St Paul's Cathedral I think the deers were on a hiding to nothing the cathedral because it, it is so we're all, I'm a very compromised human being our institutions are compromised a church is compromised simply by virtue of being an institution in the world. That's a very compromised institution. It couldn't have been repristinated without the city. The city um, is a very compromised. So in a sense, when you get to that level of institutionality, um, you, get, you have to walk away from Jesus, which I think the dean did with a broken heart. I think he probably knew. What would Jesus do? Well, he wouldn't have gone there in the first place, and yet... It's that big basilica that carries the memory of this ragged anarchist. So you just have to live with these paradoxes. You can't resolve them. If you try to get too neat, um, you, you end up with a kind of ferocious fanaticism. Um, but um, I don't think the Church of England came out of it very well. On the other hand, it did. It was honest about it. I mean, he went. Uh, and the Bishop of London even came and talked to the Guardian newspaper. Come on. I mean, that's my congregation. So, um, and I think he talked honestly. Um, because I think that, that quite sophisticated churchmen do know how compromised they are. Up there. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for your talk after the, the kind of dumb show that a few of us sat through earlier in the day. Um, it's very rich and engaging. And for me, you're, you're kind of the worst and the best of things that can come out of religion. Uh, the question is one that is one of your separation of the text and uh, what we might call practice. It just seems somehow too easy for someone who's obviously done a lot of thinking about the power of texts and for whose referential framework is richly textual. And I, I just wondered how you could be so simplistic at, at that particular moment. At which moment is this about the, the fact that... Oh, when you talk about the Bible and, you know, there has to be something in the text that licenses the yeah. particular yeah. kinds of, uh, uh, you know, homophobia of which you rightly are critical mm -hmm. and uh, the gender bias and all the rest of it you know it just seems too easy for someone who's obviously done a, clearly done a lot of reading to make that kind of very superficial separation uh, okay um, it seems to me that, that um, the, pro the nature of the problem lies with the claim to revelation um, and I think that th this is the difficulty that religions get into who have what they believe is a fixed text that is not human in origin. Um, however, they describe the mechanics of the revelation, how it, how it appeared, whether it was uh, God inspiring humans or God, as some people claim, dictating to humans. Um, 
And so you get a kind of literalism, which is actually quite a recent phenomenon, almost dateable in, in 19th century, the cusp of the 19th, 20th century in the States, um, where you get, get into this kind of literal inerrancy theory. Um, and I, I think it would be better if we moved away from the idea of revealed texts and moved back to um, the balancing between um, intrinsic and extrinsic authority in a text. Um, you clearly know a lot about texts, and great texts have an intrinsic authority. There's something about the quality of the writing and the value that the writing conveys that gives it power over me. Um, a text that has extrinsic authority is, is given it from outside. It's not the text itself that has the power. It's the, it's the power behind it that wields it. I suppose you might say the highway code or, or an act of parliament is a bit like that. And I think that, that um, religion tends to muddle up that stuff. Um, again, it, it's, it's, it's peculiar to the Bible, I think, in many ways. And Judaism doesn't do it quite to the same extent that Christianity does. It wrestles with the text. It argues with the text. Um, uh, Jonathan Safran Froes just uh, produced a new translation of the Haggadah, the, the, you know, the great text, the, the Passover text. That's a horrifying text because it's all about the plagues of Egypt. But they don't literalize it. They, they, they treat it as allegory. They, they live with it. They ask questions through it. Um, and they make the text interrogate them as well as they're interrogating the text. And I, I, I think we should move more in a kind of Judaic version when, when we're reading scripture. And I think that what's happened is that we've turned it into an idol. That's really what I was getting at. Uh, yeah, up there. Sorry, just keep your hand up so that I'm... Um, thank you. <coughs> Um, I'm Elizabeth, a fairly literal-minded person, so I'm struggling a bit. But the last couple of questions um, would seem to suggest that you might mention what's just happened in Afghanistan with the Americans more or less inadvertently burning the Koran. In your last response, you talked about the text, but here you have an unopened book that's being burned. It's, it's almost biblical, is it not? Like burning bush in reverse or something. So I, I would wonder if you could say something about the Muslim world and what to do about this sort of fundamentalism. Uh, Tobias, I don't really know enough about, um, about it to speak with any kind of relaxed authority. I, I too am appalled when I see that kind of thing happening. Um, I, I, and there will be people in the audience who know much more from the inside about the nature of Islam and the way it, 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 it holds the Quran. Um, I, I've read that to, to the Muslim, um, the Quran is what Jesus is to Christianity in a sense, which is why they have this immense reverence for the, for the physicality of it, the way it's recited. It's not like the Bible in that sense. It's almost a kind of sacrament of the presence of Allah. Um, and so you can understand the way people would feel even if it's inadvertently burnt. And again, I think you have to see all that, all of that stuff that goes on, all the, the outrage against you know, the Danish cartoonist. I think you have to locate it all in the context 
of decades of fumbling in um, Islamic countries by West, by a kind of neo-imperialist Western foreign policy. I think we've totally screwed up our relationship with that part of the world. And so you, can, you, you may not approve, you may think it's horrifying, the kind of things that, that are going on. I mean, the way we've been meddling in Afghanistan, you know, for hundreds of years. I mean, there, there are great poems about it going right back. Um, and we don't, we don't get it. Um, and uh, it's one of the things I most despair of. It illustrates precisely the problem of original sin. There is something about power. Humans in power always use it badly. Lord Acton said, all power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Most prime ministers get in power and go mad with the crazy possibilities. I think Tony Blair went mad. All the wars he led us into. I mean, it, it's a weird kind of thing. Um, and so uh, it, that's where the uncertainty principle, I think, should come into politics. We've talked about religion, but my God, you need uncertainty in politics. There's too much certainty in politics. Um, and we're going to see more, depending on who gets in the American uh, presidency. But, but I think maybe what we have to try and do is to get ourselves into the mindset of that part of the world against that great historic background against the way it understands the nature of the prophet and the nature of the Quran. And then while you might be bemused by it and certainly not worth the death of people, um, that maybe accounts for it. Down the front here. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on Rowan Williams. I find him a very compelling, compassionate, fascinating man and an interesting contributor to these discussions. But in the light of your book and your thinking, what, what do you think? Ah, Rowan Williams, I love Rowan Williams. Um, I don't know anyone that doesn't. Um, and he, he, may, he may be such a great scholar that he's almost paralyzed by his, by his, his brilliance. Um, and of course he's running an institution. Um, and the first law of institutions is in a sense survival. He's trying to keep the Anglican communion together. And it's quite difficult because um, there are these issues that, that have already, I think, torn it apart. Um, there's, a, a, there's a chunk of it that doesn't come to the big party. It has its own party. And it's over that cosmic issue of homosexuality, of course. Um, and he's played it a particular way. Um, uh, I don't want to criticise him because I love him and I think that, that he's, on a cru he's on a cross in that job. Um, uh, but I know people who've been hurt. Um, uh, we all know, I mean, Geoffrey John has been crucified by it. Uh, the man who should have been a Church of England bishop, twice passed over. Um, for no other reason than that he, his, 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 um, his nature is to love people of his own sex. He doesn't even break the church's law on disordered sex because he's a celibate um, and I'm saddened by that um, and I think that maybe he um, conceded too much to, to the real and transient archbishops in, in the communion I know he's had a terrible time from them um, but I don't want to judge him because I mean uh, if you're in that position it's almost impossible to, to get it right um, and, um, and his predecessor keeps nipping at his heels with his gums. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got time for, for one last quickish question. There's just in the middle there. 
I don't think it's on. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Yeah, shout I'd probably hear. Yeah. It is a fairly straightforward question. Um, it sounds like in 1998 there's quite a like a violent fallout um, at that event. Um, and you said it, it, when you described it, it almost as if you felt the hatred on a personal level. Was it really the first time that you'd ever witnessed it and felt it? Um, this hatred that you describe was it a shock? Um, I've had a fair bit of hatred, and I'd never like it. Um, a reasonably thick skin. It, it always comes as a kind of surprise. Um, that was of a different order. I mean, all, one Nigerian bishop, it wouldn't have bothered Jeannie and me if it were true, but one Nigerian bishop spread the rumor um, that the reason I was campaigning for gay liberation was because I had two lesbian daughters. Um, uh, not would, it would have come as a surprise to them, I think. Uh, well, yes, it would have come as a surprise to them. Um, um, and I, I felt kind of demeaned by that. I mean, it didn't make me angry. I, I, I left more in sorrow than anger. I mean, it kind of... I felt sort of defeated. I felt, I felt soiled as well, mind you, because, I mean, I, I, I overdo it. I don't... I've got a kind of... Um, a tongue I don't always govern well, and I tend to engage the tongue before the mind quite often. Um, and so I've made, I've, I've said things that upset people, uh, and I'm, I don't really like upsetting people. So I've, I've kind of, um, I've usually been forgiven. But, but, but if you, if you, if you're within a community of faith that's feeling beleaguered, there's a guy who writes about a weekly letter to the Scotsman attacking me. Um, uh, he, he was off for three weeks and I got worried he was ill um, <laughs> and, um, only five people read the Scotsman so it doesn't much matter but it's um, you, you do it, it, it's kind of sad it's saddening to think that that's happened because um, I, I, I'm quite used to people disagreeing with me even challenging me um, and I know that I'm not a thoroughly good person I mean I, and my boredom level is too too low to be able to be kind of heroically good, um, but I think I'm reasonably well-intentioned. So I, I I do find it tough when people who've never met me um, can write confidently about me in in a, in a really insulting way. Um, and uh, when you get that within a religious context, I mean the the odium theologicum. There's no hatred like it actually. I mean. Uh, the religious are great haters. It's partly because we hate... What was it they said about university politics? They're so virulent because the stakes are so low. Um, um, it, in religion, the stakes, I suppose, are also both low and high. Um, um, and my friend Jack Spong... I mean, I haven't had death threats, but my friend Jack Spong has had about 20 death threats. Um, uh, he's, um, and he's much more fond of the church than I am. Jack wants to reform the church. He wants to make it kind of Spong-like, um, which I think would be uh, not... Ever, I mean, I'm not sure I'd want that myself. I think, I think that there probably have to be people in it who believe more than I do to keep it going. Um, um, but he doesn't deserve death, death threats. Um, 
Uh, Alain de Botton's been getting death threats from atheists recently. And we talk, I mean, what's going on here? And it's all because the whole thing is so intrinsically uncertain. You'd think if you got that message, you'd relax and say, we can't know this for certain. That's what you think. This is what I think. Where's the whiskey? <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, um, I'd like to thank Richard Holloway. And, and, there, and there is one thing that I am certain about, and that is that you should all go out and buy this book because it is absolutely miraculous. Thank you very much.